Well, welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 253. This week is the week of Purim. Purim is the exuberant joy that the Gemara says, Chayiv Inish Lipsume, persons should become intoxicated to the point that they can't distinguish between Arur Hamon and Baruch Mordechai. Which seems quite strange, because Arur Hamon means that Hamon is cursed, literally evil, the Hitler of the generation, who wanted to wipe out every man, woman, and child, every Jewish man, woman, and child, and Baruch Mordechai, the blessing of Mordechai the Tzaddik. Why would that be a quality to see them as equal? To take it even further, the Gemara continues and tells a story that the Rabbi, one Purim, was celebrating with Rab Zayda, his colleague. And it's come the Rabbi v'shochta le Rab Zayda. Rabbi rose and shochta means he shecht. He slaughtered Rab Zayda. Because he was so drunk. That's the apparent interpretation of the Gemara. The apparent meaning. And what happened? Then he performed a miracle and brought him back to life. And the next year he came again to Rab Zayda. Let's celebrate again. Rab Zayda said, no, not this time. Not every day miracles happen. So what is this? What kind of behavior is that? That would be the best reason that to prohibit drinking on Purim, to prevent a, 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 a tragedy like that. In the year Tov Shemem Dalet, 35 years ago, it was also Shonim Ubedes, was a leap year like this year, and the Rebbe spoke about it in the Shabbosim around Purim, that year, the Gemara. And his, his explanation was unbelievable. What was the explanation? That the Gemara, everything is precise, the words. It doesn't say he killed him. It says, in That the primary thing in Shechita is not the killing. Moshach is lifting up or drawing back or elevating. Or Moshach. Because when you shech something, you have to not only shech, you have to also remove the skin. So the shechita, the, the fact that the word shechita is used, it means that he elevated him. Rabbe in Hebrew means great. Rabzeire in Aramaic, Rabbe in Aramaic and Hebrew, but especially in Aramaic means great. Rabzeire from the word zoir means small. Rabbe was a great master of primis hatera, nichnes yain v'yotzeseid, and when the wine enters, it reveals the deepest secrets of Teda. He was revealing the secrets to Rab Zayda, And Vishachta the Rab Zayda, he caused him to have Klesa Nefesh. Which means his soul was so in ecstasy and so in, mesmerized and uplifted by these teachings, it actually the soul expired and left the body. So it was a physical story. It wasn't just metaphorical. But it wasn't through a knife, God forbid, slaughtering him. And then he created a miracle. And of course, Rab afterwards said, Einstein, I had this great revelation, but this is not something that they say that had It's not the orderly way. I remember when the Rebbe said, the Sikhi gave two examples for this state of higher consciousness that can cause someone literally to be completely removed from time and space as we know it. One story was, a story with the Rebbe Rashab, in the year Tofreshayim Bey's, 1912. 
where he was traveling with his son, the Friedrich Rebbe. And the Friedrich Rebbe tells and writes that he came in, he sees his father meditating, contemplating. Okay, came back a little later, he's still in that same state. Hours passed, without moving. The Rebbe Rashab exactly the same way. Finally, I don't know if it says how long it took, but finally he came, so to speak, out of it. And from the way that Rebbe Rashab was asking questions, he could see that he did not really know what time and space it was. So Friedrich Rebbe, in a respectful way, responded, till, so to speak, the Rebbe Rashab was able to re-enter. The Rebbe said, yes, shame, and there are those that say that's when he was preparing the magnum opus of Hemshech Ayim Beis that would be delivered later that year, Shvus, of 1912. The Rebbe gave this as an example that a person can lift themselves to a point where literally the soul is in one place and the body in time and space is in another. Another example the Rebbe gave, a story of the Rebbe, Mojit Sereb. Mojit Sereb was known as a tremendous composer of beautiful melodies. In the early part of the 20th century, he needed, God forbid, some surgery. There was no anesthesia in those days. So it was a very painful state. So he told the doctors and the people, before you start, let me sing a song. When you see that I'm literally like in a different time and place, transported to a different time and place, that's when you perform the surgery. And that's what happened, and he didn't feel it. He was able to induce that type of disconnect. So the Rebbe said these two examples. As a matter of fact, just as an aside, I was one Pesach in a program, and I met an Enikel, Ben Achaben, literally the grandson of the Mojot Rebbe. His name named after him. Taub is the family name. And I asked him about the story. I wanted to hear of the family. He says, absolutely, we all know the story. Not that we need corroboration, but it was interesting also to hear it from his angle. So the story of the Gemara, the Rebbe elaborates there and negates most of the interpretations are metaphorical, it's a moshal, that it actually happened. But not in the way that we would think, in the way of shechita, of elevation, that when you have a gili of primis atera, you can literally have an expiration of soul and body. And that's also not the kavon of the intention. Now it's interesting, the Rebbe, even though at the time in Naftav Shem which would be 1984, it seemed like the Rebbe was machadesh then. Actually, we found later that in a footnote, in a maimer, on this, on this maimer chazal, Omer Rava, chayv inish l'psume, that a person's response is chayv, uh, is obligated to come to that type of state that's beyond recognition. And he brings the Gemara at the end of there in the footnotes, in Tovshin Ches, Friedrich Rebbe said, or delivered this maimer, it was published, the Rebbe has footnotes, and he brings in a footnote, he says, to explain the Gemara, So this, the gist of it is there, not with a full elaboration, is already in Tov Ches. But that's not uncommon, that you see hints of ideas that the Rebbe later would explain and elaborate in earlier years. Okay. What is the meaning to us? It's not the meaning that we become so oblivious between good and evil, between Haman and Mordechai. It's not that we become oblivious to the point that we could hurt somebody. Is the contrary, there's a point where we are contained in the conscious structure of things. We're methodical, we're strategic, we make a plan. Purim is an outbreak of joy of Adela Yoda. Above Yoda, not beneath, not getting to a point of shtus, of nonsense, of a person behaving in a frivolous way, God forbid, or in a way where he's oblivious 
to the, to the guidelines and the boundaries, you come to a point where you get so connected to the higher source that nothing is distinguished by you. Not that you would, God forbid, in any way do something that would feed evil and not feed the good. But you are right now in a state that's beyond it all, a transcendent total state. And that's Purim. And through Gili Primis Atera, which is clearly the ultimate way to do it, yes, there's a mitzvah to drink, but the Rebbe made his Akbolis. And Bechal Akbolis, a person is not supposed to drink to the point where they become oblivious. The fact that Purim says this because it's in Gedusha, when it's done in a holy way, sanctioned by the Tater, you reach a place like that. But if a person is just drinking to the point where they become completely unconscious and has nothing to do with holiness, it's to do with their own issues, that's not what the Purim Mitzvah is. So here's not to go into the discussion whether a person should drink like that. In general, the Rebbe's approach was no. One person could be Yetzir. You rely on the Chassidah Shidin and the people. The rest, maybe Takalur and Primisatera. You say a Lachaim or two. But Purim is that type of joy because what was it? It was the transformation of the negative. V'nepachu. That Homan, <clears throat> who planned this genocide, was about to destroy, God forbid, L'hashmid L'abid, completely obliterate and annihilate all the Jews. And they were all there in that, those 127 nations in Achishverish's Persian Empire were all under the control and they were all subject to this decree. And it turned around. When something turns around, it, it indicates it's not a methodical step-by-step process. You know, there's a simcha that can come. You do a few steps, you resolve something, you have a joy. But a joy that comes from utter darkness, the utter abyss to the highest point of total redemption, of total exoneration, of total transformation, that is re- leading to a place of simcha adelayada, beyond it all. And that beyond is experienced on Purim. In each one of us, we have to find how do you apply this in our personal lives, that we all have our orderly structure. When we, we wake up in the morning, we daven, we learn, we daven, go to work. Everyone in there has their regimen. There comes one day in the year where we're told to reach a place of gadol, like Yom Kippur, but even higher because Yom Kippur is compared to Purim, to reach a place of the soul's pure desire and pure connection to the divine to the point you're not even conscious of it that's the key that you're not conscious sometimes we do things very consciously you do a mitzvah with kavona here the point is to get to a place that's beyond conscious you're just in the zone where object melts into the sub- subject melts and object the distinction between subject and object melts away and you have a seamless experience where you don't even feel that you're experiencing it and that's the word Adaliyada. That's the meaning of it. And of course, as I said, Gili gets you to a state like that. But it has to be done with care, because this is not a miracle, cannot happen every day. So we always have to do Adis and Kalim. There's always the energies within the containers. Each one has to find their Bachoma Eitcha. They're going beyond the regular. And that brings in an energy that's also beyond, that allows us to reach levels that are often inaccessible throughout the year, but in Purim you're able to access it. Another tremendous mess lesson of Purim is Ahdus. Monis Levi from Rav Shmuel Alkovitz, who was a brother-in-law of the Ramak. So he writes that all the mitzvahs of Purim are all 
connected to Achdus. Why? Because Haman had said, Am Echad, Bafuzim Mefeded, one nation, but spread apart. So in a way, he hinted to, to the power and to the challenge that you could also be spread apart and diverse to the point of even divisive. What's the tikkun is when we stand, what's the repair, what is the antidote is total unity. Sending gifts to each other, matanus lavenim, to the poor, sending food gifts to each other, shlachmonas, the suda, which you sit and celebrate with others, ardus. That's one day put in, where we create a total ardus. Ardus too transcends differences, transcends the differences of, yes, the dark and the light, transcends the differences of the regular hierarchy and structure of existence. Of course, there's many, many messages in Purim, but as our custom is, we begin with something relevant that we can apply to our personal lives. And it's a great opportunity that anyone in whatever situation you're in, and people have their challenges, and sometimes we feel we're overwhelmed, comes Purim and it's a day that gives us energy. It's giving us strength from, as we know, as we read the Megillah, these days, Niskarim, I remembered. The question is, what means Venasim? Recreated, says that Izal, because in time, time is a spiral. So every time, that part time of the year, we, that energy is recreated that was there the first Purim. So actually, the day of Purim has an open channel to be able to go beyond the regular structure and transform even darkness to light, which is the ultimate goal. So in regular structures, dark is dark and light is light, Homan is Homan, Baruch. But now you have the transformation that even Haman and his evil decrees and his plots and conspiracies are all transformed to great joy. And of course, it's a good opportunity to learn a little chassidus on what Purim means. Chassidus that's a little stronger and greater than your kalim. Let it reach to a point of ecstasy. We can't compare ourselves to the Rebbe Rashab, but everybody can reach a place where sometimes you are beyond regular time and space. You're so immersed that the idea completely engulfs you and encompasses you. It's very cleansing, purifying, and it allows us to then come back to the structure of life with a whole new attitude, recognizing how to bring infinity into the finite. Adela yoda into yoda. Superconsciousness into consciousness. In the language of Kabbalah Chsidis, Chach Mistemah into Chach Magluya. Superconscious wisdom, intelligence, into conscious wisdom, intelligence, which then branches and channels into the emotions, into our thought, speech, and action, elevating everything to a much higher plane that's beyond the conscious structure of things. Okay. With that opening, I want to also cross-reference to episodes 59, 108, 154, 203. These are previous episodes that I've spoken about this topic of Purim. All episodes can be seen at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. They're all archived. You can download them as podcasts. You can see, view and watch them, listen to them at your convenience. They're also time-stamped in the YouTube desktop, laptop version, where you can actually go to the actual topic and just click hyperlink straight to that topic. This is also an opportunity to mention that This program is all based on your questions. So please, submit your questions totally anonymously, confidentially, at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. There's a forum. 
And I will get to the questions. I'll be a little backed up, obviously. And, but we continue to move forward. So bear with me. I'll also use this opportunity to mention that the essay contest of 2019, which closed a few weeks ago, is in full force evaluation. There's just a lot of essays. So I have no real update to give you except that they're being evaluated. And please God, very shortly we will be announcing the winners. Another exciting moment in that the fifth is the fifth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest. Regarding Purim, a question came in, which is really a halacha question, but since it touches upon something that has an element of ashkofe, which means also ideology and attitude and sociology, I felt it's worthwhile talking about. May women read the Megillah for other women? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I wanted to know if the Rebbe ever commented, commented on the practice of women reading the Megillah for other women. Is this acceptable both according to halacha and ashkofe? Halacha, of course, is law. Ashkofe is ideology, Torah, Jewish ideology. If the women themselves are mechuyovish, which means they're, they're, they're responsible to hear the Megillah, why can't they read the Megillah for other women? It does not seem that Chabad adopts this practice. I'd be interested in finding out the background to this issue. Thanks, and Afrein Lechem Okay. So without going into a long elaboration, and there is plenty to say, there are generally three opinions. In general, a woman is absolved and potter from mitzvah shazman grama, which means time-bound mitzvahs. And there's reasons for it, because she is involved with something greater than that in building her family and children, so you can't keep her bound to a time-bound mitzvah when she may have a priority that supersedes that. So it's actually due to her greater responsibility. So you would think that Purim is time-bound mitzvah. It's on a specific day of the year. And the mitzvah, including reading and, and uh, hearing the Megillah, she would be potter, meaning she doesn't have to. She's not obligated. Says the Gemara, no, and halacha paskins. Since the women were also in this miracle, so in this case, they're also responsible to hear the Megillah, the story, and the other mitzvahs of Purim. Okay, so this then, of course, brings up a big question. Since they're responsible, if they're not responsible to hear the Megillah, then obviously they can't read the Megillah for people who are responsible. You have to have someone responsible reading for those that are responsible, meaning men. But here that they are obligated can they read Megillah for men? And one opinion holds absolutely. Rashi and, uh, and others that you can't, the Rambam. Whether you do actually, there can be other reasons, other considerations, cover that Sibur or other things, that, you know, that not because a woman does not honor the public, but that there are other boundaries. But technically speaking, she should be able to. There's another opinion, no, she cannot. And some explain that as being the reason for that because mitzvahs for her to hear the Megillah not necessarily to read the Megillah. And then there's a third opinion that yes, she can hear and read for other women. Without going into the reasons for each three, for each of these three opinions, there are these three. Bottom line, mainstream halacha, you don't find this as being a lechatchila, because this would also mean if there's no choice but to go initially, it would go against the regular protocol of the etiquette of, most, of a synagogue, so I can't tell you I've ever heard anything from the Rebbe um, negating it. The Rebbe relies on Allah, but also not supporting it. 
But conceptually, yes. But practically speaking, it's not done. Now, women for women, there are communities where it's done and has been done. Regarding actually what you should do, that you have to go to a rabbi, to a competent rabbi in your community and ask. But the hashkaf of it is that these three opinions all based on the fact that a woman was also in the miracle. Okay. Good. Next question, which is not Purim related, but it's also relevant. And that is the question of this. Why was I born with talents if I am seemingly not allowed to develop and express them? Hi there. I'm quite a new follower of your programs and would like to thank you for all that you do. I'm sure you're, impact, you're impacting many more people than, you, than one can imagine. There's an issue that I've long been struggling with that I think you might be able to help me with. As a yeshiva bocha, growing up in a very chassidish family that originates from Chabad Chassidim, already a number of generations, my question is as follows. As quite a successful bocha, my talents stretch far beyond the academic level, and in fact have thankfully been born with extraordinary, and I've in fact been thankfully been born with extraordinary talents that, that stretch far beyond the average yeshiva curriculum. So for example, I've been told by various renowned musicians that I possess an incredible talent that if worked on can reach phenomenal achievement. My question is that if, as far as the understanding I get from the yeshiva system, I belong in yeshiva and I'm expected to immerse myself entirely, etc. Why was I born with talents? Thank you. Okay. This question, obviously, is one that really challenges and plagues many people. Um, there are people also, women, who say, I have a beautiful voice. Why can't I sing? Men before men. And others who feel that their talents are suppressed due to Torah, halacha, and the system. So let's make a few things clear here. First of all, yes, Hashem blesses you with a talent. It is not meant to not be used. It's meant to be actualized and to make the world a better place. It's part of your mission, Ashlichus, to do so. How to do so, that needs to be looked at. There's many ways to use a talent. But that's the first thing. Hashem would not create us, God would not create us with faculties and tools not to use them. It would be like saying, as insane as it sounds, I gave you eyes, but I want you to keep your eyes closed the rest of your life. Yes, don't follow. Control where your eyes are looking. Guard your eyes. Make sure they look at the right things. But to suggest that the Abishter would give God would give us eyes and say, never use them, is cruel. You don't do such a thing. Give a mind. We have emotions. We have many things. But anything in life, we have free choice and free will. And it's always possible to use something the wrong way. So the question of talent is not whether to use it. The question is how to use it and how to channel it. So I, would, I don't know you, I don't know all the details, but I would say to you, you have to find people who help cultivate your talent and help you actualize in the best possible way. Now, does that mean you're going to go into the secular world and try to become a rock star? Maybe that's not the kavon. That doesn't mean you can't use your talents to the fullest. The key of using a talent is not just you become world famous and make a lot of money and become a celebrity, the key to the talent is to use it for what God wants you to use, which is to uplift the world in some way, to use your talent to transform your corner of the world and everywhere you can reach with your unique and indispensable skills. So the key here is to remember every talent is holy. 
Channeling it is the question. Someone will say, I have a talent, I can do whatever I want. I'm a writer. I'm going to write things even that are inappropriate. That's not the, that's not the, the point is to use the talent and channel it and harness it in the right direction. If you're having difficulty doing so, find people who will encourage that. Now, are there some in the system that are afraid of people using their talents and going out of the pale? Of course there are. But that has nothing to do with Taylor. That has to do with human, uh, human weaknesses, human fears, and human feeling threatened. This is a famous story with Rabbi Eli Lipsker, Olav Shalom, one of the musicians in the Chabad world, one of the pioneers. He was a Bach in Yeshiva. He came from Israel to study here in 770. And <clears throat> he loved music. He was musical. So he would sneak off to take music lessons. He was about where did he get money from? He had loans. It was not easy. One day the yeshiva, the Anhala, the faculty got wind of it. And they were going to call him in and tell him, either or, you're in yeshiva, or you're, if you want to be in yeshiva, stay in yeshiva. If you want to play music, we'll send you back to Israel. But they didn't want to do anything without reporting to the Rebbe. So they told the Rebbe about it. I heard the story from first hand, from Rabbi Lipsker, and I heard it from people who heard it from the faculty of the yeshiva. And the Rebbe said, on the contrary, find out how he's paying for these lessons, and the yeshiva should pay. Something of that and that, that gist. The Rebbe saw a talent, and he said, we'll see nachas. So it actually encouraged him. He told the yeshiva not only not to do what they wanted to do, the opposite. So Rabbi David Raskin, who was part of the faculty of the yeshiva, calls in the Bachar, Rabbi Lipsker, Eli Lipsker. And of course, he right away sees uh, trouble in his mind. And he says, I hear you go and taking music lessons. He didn't lie. He said, yeah, how are you paying for it? He says, I scrape it out. I get loans and so on. And he was sure they're going to tell him, pack your bags. No, we're going to pay for it from now on. We're going to pay now, is this a license that everybody in yeshiva should suddenly go ahead and pursue interests? But it shows, obviously not, case by case, but it shows the open-mindedness necessary that sometimes it has to be cultivated. Now, he also he kept yeshiva, but he had also that element. How to balance the two? That's what each parent and each educator needs to do. So my point is, from a point of view of Torah, a talent is God-given. How many times did we hear, and I've heard, I remember my own ears hearing, where there was an author that came to Fabrengen. And the author may have written books, and I know some of the authors that wrote books that were not exactly in the spirit of Taylor and Halacha. And the Rebbe spoke about how your talent is God-given and you should use it to the fullest. The Rebbe said this to the writer Nathaniel in Mur, who used to work for the Algemena, and he wrote things that were anti-Israel and anti-Jewish. And yet, the Rebbe said that. Because the talent is God-given. How you use it, that's already free will. So we don't throw out the baby in the bathwater and say, since the talent could be used for the wrong thing, let's not use talents. The contrary. Use it and channel it to the right way. Because of the fools, God's going to destroy his world. Because of the fools who don't know how to use talents properly, we're not going to use talents. We're going to eliminate them. A talent is a gift. So I encourage you, to find the right people to speak to. And I'd be happy if you want to contact me to give you some guidance, some contacts to network, etc. The topic was a, a bit addressed upon, it touches upon a little in episodes 3 and 109. 
probably more as well, but that's what I was able to identify. Next question. And you see the questions are not necessarily related, even though everything has a connection. Next question, completely from a different field altogether. What is the Rebbe's opinion on chiropractic medicine? Okay. Chiropractic is obviously an existing form of interventions. Some swear by it. Some dismiss it as quack. And some, I'm not sure, some are not sure. So it's good to find out what would the Rebbe, what would the, the, coming from obviously authoritative place, say about this. So I identified, I found a few letters, and I want to welcome anyone who has more answers, letters, stories, to please weigh in, send us your comments, and I'll share it to the public. for So I found three, um, I believe, uh, two letters actually. One is dated, I'm just looking here, just a moment, the 11th of Tavis, Tavshin Yud Ches. So it's quite a while ago. And the Rebbe writes, I'll just translate it from the Hebrew, loose translation. What you write about the situation of health and the doctors are saying that the, the issues, they're, uh, they're identifying the, the symptoms are due to, um, to the... To the, to, to the um, to the spinal column, in other words, the, the neck that runs the spine, they want to work on the, on the back and the neck. So the Rebbe says, you surely know that in the wisdom, the wisdom of healing, even though some doctors relate it and dismiss it, that they use ex- experts in manipulating in manipulating the the different parts of a person's spine and um, and help resolve issues of this nature. The Rebbe says, even though I must say that I'm not bislavus, I'm not excited by this shita, by this approach, but experience has shown that number of times it does bring tails, it does bring benefit. And therefore, it's worthy, worth trying. And the Rebbe says, I think the name of this is called chiropractic. So there you have it, a certain wariness that Rebbe expresses, but at the same time says it has brought, experience shows it has brought benefit. So that's one letter. Another letter. Is in the volume 18 in Igor's Kedish. The letter is the letter numbered 7019. Just want to see if I have the actual page. No. So there, um, the Rebbe also writes like following that regarding what, uh, from the few words you wrote in your letter about this type of intervention that some doctors have begun using, which they call chiropractory, which means it's not zguli, it's not some type of quack. Zguli would mean like, you know, it's just, uh, you, it's random type of uh, manipulation, which is opinion of people, some who oppose this approach. 
So the Rebbe says the difference of opinion is only to the extent of how much it's a benefit, not more than that. And that is a answer I'm giving you whether it's, you're allowed to go and use this type of, of use, use a chiropractor. So basically the Rebbe is saying that yes, you can, because the difference is only in how much it works, but not something that is completely off, off something you should not approach. Nevertheless, the Rebbe says, I'm not into paskering dinim. Therefore, you should go to a rabbi that is uh, rules on these matters in order to specifics and details regarding this type of intervention. So there you have what I found about this topic. And um, as I said, if anybody has any more thoughts on this, any comments, please send them to me. I try to present things as objectively as possible based on sources, and these are some sources, and you heard exactly the language, the way the Rebbe uses it. Okay. Next question, again, unrelated, is a question about the book called Sefer Yosifun, or as is known in the English language, Josephus. Josephus Flavius was a Jew who ended up being on the Roman side of things when the Second Temple was destroyed. And he was a historian, and he wrote it up in his document, documented it, and it became known as the book of Josephus. So the question is, what is our attitude to, to this book? Do we reject it? Because there is a whole different um, opinions. Some say you cannot trust what he wrote because in a sense he was a traitor, a sold out, because he writes in glowing terms and very positively about the Romans. And the others, they say, no, he did that because he had no choice. He was behind enemy lines. And you couldn't rely and he's actually quoted by Rashi and by others. So what's our attitude to this book of Josephus? So let's begin with this. The Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch. It's a halacha that actually mentions Josephus, Yosefim. In the Hilcha Shabbos, there's a question about what you're allowed to learn and read on Shabbos. There's certain things you're not supposed to read. So in the Hilcha Shabbos, Simon Shin Zayin, 307, um, 30, Halachat Gilamad. So what are you allowed to read? She says you're allowed to read books that have in it Musr and Yerushamayim. Musr would mean type of like direction in life, ethics, and Yerushamayim, things that bring fear of God. And he says like the book of Yosefun, of Josephus, that does those things. It has Musr and Yerushamayim. So therefore you're allowed, but the Alter Rebbe adds, but not not to overindulge in it, not to go beyond, which means a minimal reading is allowed. But from that alone, you see, this is Shabbos. In the weekdays, you don't have the issue. So you see that the book is not, according to Allah, not something that is forbidden. In the volume 23 of the Kutisichas, page 345, it's a letter dated the 20th of Kislev 5744, Tavshim the Rebbe writes that many question the authenticity of the book. For example, he quotes, he, he writes about the measurement of the Beis Hamikdash, that's completely not mentioned in Gemara and Razal, and it's even different than what we hold. So some say that's a proof that you cannot rely on this book. Yet, that the Rebbe also mentions it's possible as well that it may not have been translated properly. And even if one thing is off, doesn't mean the whole book is uh, off limits. There are many things you could derive from it. 
Is it a halachic source like you can rely on it like you're lying Gemara? Obviously not. The Rebbe also happens to mention there that he's not called Rabbi Yosef. Joseph, Joseph is as Yosef. Joseph, is, of course, was the, the Roman version, the Latin Roman version of the name. He's not called Rabbi Yosef. Okay, so there we have the attitude to this book, which means you could read it and it's been read and it is cited in a number of places. I mentioned reliable authorities. As if nothing more, it may not be a source for a pure halacha, but a source of a gili mitzias, where he writes something and tells us a narrative. Even if it was not a Jew, even if it was someone that was, we may not even trust, but if they write something, it could be looked at as some type of at least some documentation of a witness that happened. You could challenge and say maybe he's not a reliable witness, but as a fact of things that he wrote, facts that he wrote, there's a lot of things that we all do rely on and see as being part of the narrative of the events that happened during that period in history. Okay. Now, last week I began to continue discussing prayer and davening. As I pointed out, it's something that's fundamental. And I read a letter last week, and I continue to emphasize the point that yes, in Chassidus and in Teda, it's not just enough to learn and not just enough to do. There's emotional conditioning. And where is emotional conditioning? What is the service of the heart, the service of the emotions? That's Davin. When you learn, yes, it can evoke an emotion. It can arouse an emotion. But learning is primarily cerebral. Emotions is where life plays itself out, that you begin to develop an emotional relationship with God. So we say, You should know today, God. But then it says, And so you shall apply it, or return it, or, or internalize it into your heart. Know your Father, God. And serve him with a complete heart. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Listen, learn, but then vahaftes Hashem Elokecha, b'chol avofcha, b'chol nafshecha, b'chol meidecha. So, what is love? Let's use a human example for it. Love, you could say, I really appreciate my spouse. I really appreciate a friend. I really appreciate. But that can be a cerebral appreciation. You understand their value. You understand how important they are. You understand how important they are to you. Love is a particular feeling. You're attracted to that person. You feel connected. You're emotionally bonded. So Hashem is saying, God is saying, I don't just want you to understand me and learn about me and know me. I want you to feel me. I want you to relate to me. And that's the essence of Davin. That only goes to demonstrate how little we know how to do that. Even learning about God is also quite not is an achievement. To know, to contemplate, to be absorbed and think about what God is about and what godliness is about and the way God created existence, the cosmos, the secrets, the mysteries. But to feel is a whole different challenge because it's not something that you don't see. So the only way is to really, as the Rambam says, how does a person come to love and awe, which are emotions of God, by contemplating. So contemplating awakens emotion because when you contemplate, you begin to appreciate. As you appreciate, you can learn to love that. So that's davening. Each one of us is fully capable of it, but you have to apply yourself. This does not come automatically. It will not come through lip service. This comes through emotional effort 
emoting, connecting, emotional intelligence. So in that spirit, and following up previous, many previous episodes where I discussed about it, I'm going to just one, read one more letter, and I'll sporadically, time to time, especially when new questions come in, continue to address the topic. I will also share with you that in Teda Sholem, which is the Frid Rebbe Rashab Sichis, is a fascinating, detailed directions of how to daven. Right in the beginning, right in the beginning of Teda Sholem, it breaks it down in detail. I'll share more details another time, what he says there, but you can look it up if you like. Okay, so here is one, another person writing about the service of daven. How can we begin to daven the way Chassidus expects of us? So see this as prayer continued, an ongoing theme. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your clarifications regarding Avodah Satfila. That means the service of prayer. The Mishnah says, just for the record, on three pillars the world stands, which includes the personal microcosmic world, Allah Teda, learning, Allah Veda, what's Aveda? Karbonis, but Aveda Shabalev, Tfila, and Algamilas Chasadim, acts of goodness and kindness. Benevolence. So, I understand that you explained about Ave and Yira. I understand what you explained about Ave and Yira. What I explained back in one early episode was that Ave is sensing closeness and intimacy. Yira is sensing respect and awe. Both are necessary in a healthy relationship. You need closeness, but you also need respect. You need boundaries, space. Perhaps you will one day explain how we simple, how we simple people are to relate to words like Vishuv Yislav Libay Ba'ave Aza Kirish Pe'esh. Okay. So this expression from Tanya, based on Zehar and so on, that your heart will be inflamed, engulfed with passion. Kirish Pe'esh, like a fiery flame. And Nefesh Shecheach. Okay. A soul that pines. It's in English and I'm trying to pronounce it properly. And similar fantastic descriptions of the love and awe experience that are found all over Chassidus. You decided to not respond to the first of my three questions and concluded that this forum may not be the place to deal with. We should find a mashpia who will do with us, who will do it with us individually. I'm only reading that because yes, that's correct. Some things you could talk about. Some things are just too personal. You really need to speak to a mentor, a mashpia. Please that I understand that I, like so many others, got mildly practical vagueness versus concrete, usable specifics from mashpiyim. After all, the impetus for these very video shiurim of yours came from a debacle that was born out of the vacuum created by those who should be teaching applied chassidus. Recall the bocher whom you quoted in one of your previous episodes, as bemoaning his having a boring mashpia who is not touching him. Please don't send us to such mashpiyim for a foundational pillar of chassidus chabad. First of all, I'm not here to send anybody anywhere. I'm just trying to be of use and make good suggestions. I think that there are some that don't deserve to be mashpiyim, but there are some good ones. And I think when it comes to davening, an emotional process, as much as I say here, and I'll I'll say as much as I can, it's always good to have a guide. Because it's not just, just like learning. You need to have a teacher, a, a chavr, a friend, davening even more so. I therefore ask you to once again, once again to provide clarity on the following. 
to focus on Hashem's greatness and awe as it is described in the Siddur and as the Siddur is explicated by the Mepharshim, the commentaries, is something I'm very familiar with. However, without Chassidus, one can do this too. I understand that learning Chassidus before davening is about davening mitepes, to daven with something, and this is part of that, that, that need, and this is the part that needs clarity. This is supposed to be a piece of emotional work, as you put it, that should influence the rest of the day, and little by little alter one's character. Until the Friedrich Rebbe came to the U.S. and began the notion of spreading Yiddishkeit, this was what Chassidus Chabad was all about, Internal work, emotional work. Davening with a chassidus meditation that would propel das power, das is das, connecting, bonding, and affect one's emotions. As a Lubavitcher, I'm supposed to know how to do this, and I don't. I'm reaching out to you who, by Hashem's kindness and your effort, is publicly teaching chassidus applied. Please do not pass this on to those who either don't know what this really is, or who are bent on keeping to themselves. Once again, thanks for being the man of the hour and nourishing our souls. Okay, look. As I said, I will not hesitate or in any way repress or withhold anything that I can offer. And I've done and shared what I've known. But I do think when it comes to things that matters of this, it's important to have someone that knows you personally. So I reiterate again, tefillah is work. It's emotional work. And I have no doubt that if we all did it properly, or at least tried to do it, it would change our lives. You would have healthier emotions, healthier way of venting and processing feelings, healthier way to relate to human beings, because emotions are emotions. If you can relate to God, well, you can then transfer that and, and let it spill over into how we relate to each other. And we'd become more emotionally mature and evolved human beings. But that requires sitting down and davening properly, reading it. I'm not talking about the kamos now, the amount. I'm talking about reading it in a way that that you apply it emotionally. What's my emotional relationship with God? Not just thank you for giving me my blessings and my health and my parnas and livelihood and gifts, but what's the vahafta? What's the love? How is it expressed in your heart? Now it could be expressed that you're committed to what Hashem wants, but also a feeling that there's a passionate emotional connection to the divine within you and to the divine in general, to Hashem. This is the work that we need to do. So we'll stop now with this. We'll, as I said, this will be a continuing, um, a continuing discussion and this is a series on Tefillah. Okay, the next. Where are we now? Follow-up. Let's do a few follow-ups. Mic drop. This was in episodes 250 and 251. And I uh, got plenty, plenty correspondence in all directions. Frankly, mostly positive, positive, and some critique. I don't want to read them all because it's too much. So I'll just give a taste of each one. So one person writes, I really wanted to see how you would thread the needle and address such a sensitive and controversial topic. You struck, in my opinion, an excellent balance. You were able to take Torah principles, Hasidic principles, and help us find a methodology to how to apply it to this issue as well as many others. I know that you've received critique from some who say you're trying to placate everybody, but I absolutely feel that's incorrect and not fair. 
I wish more people appreciated your subtlety and tact, reflecting the Torah's unadulterated and and dispassionate approach to all issues. Okay, thank you very much for that. And um, yes, indeed, I'm not looking to placate anybody. I'm not looking to make everybody happy. I'm not looking to make everybody unhappy. That's not the intention. The intention is to look at something with trying without any subjective opinions and take it from all different angles. So that was one person's comment, which reflected quite a few others as well. Another person writes, Rabbi Jacobson, I've become a loyal listener and learned from you how, from learned how you dissect issues and get to the core of the matter at hand using the Rebbe's teachings as your guidepost. Therefore, when the mic drop controversy exploded, I was sure you would address it with no words, no holds barred, open honesty using Teda and Chassidus as your base. Instead, it seems the last two episodes you've tried to be all things to all people. Talking like a politician, hungry for acceptance from all sides without overly offending everyone. It doesn't work and you should be the first to know it. With that, here's where you fell off the tracks. It's a proven fact that mic drop is a commercial venture, and the more salacious revealing the speaker becomes, the more tickets, attention, income flows to the owners. I've heard from people who agreed to speak how they pressured them to push tickets, say Loshan Hara, Rechilis, which is Shemra about people, basically speaking negatively about others. Sometimes their own parents, God forbid. It serves no therapeutic purpose, and many of the speakers regretted it deeply after getting their 15 minutes of fame. The hurts that they cause to relationships will last a lifetime, and my job will just keep on going. It is patently the opposite of everything we're taught about sneers, not, not clothing, but action, speech, etc. And fits the modern, let it all hang out. For, for websites to publicly defy Rabbonim and from Jewish community cannot exist with someone configuratively spit on the Rabbonim, I don't need to quote to you the many letters and answers from the Rebbe about listening to the Rav. Even if you think he's a coward, money-hungry, scumbag, I don't know if I should have read that, who doesn't understand anything, some have willfully went public against the community Rabbonim and now complaining about boycotts. I don't understand how you don't see this. I can go on and on, but honestly, I expected better from you. I'll still listen, and I know you can do better. We're all human, but when we fall down, we pick ourselves up and keep on going. Should I comment on this or not? I know you can't respond to me, so let me just say this. Um, I read exactly what the person wrote. Uh, I take all critique. I don't feel it's justified, this critique, frankly, because I know where I'm coming from. I think that you have to ask yourself whether you're also somewhat subjective. I think there's too much hysteria and too too many voices out there. Everyone seeming to claim that they know exactly what God wants. I don't challenge Rabbonim. Rabbonim have the full right to write a psaq. But we also have the right to ask where they get it from. Especially when you're dealing with matters that are not necessarily going to be resolved with one psaq here. You have issues some people don't even listen and so on and so forth. I'm not here to endorse anyone. I'm not here to condemn anyone. So I don't agree with your um, comments about myself. But that's fine. We don't have to agree. And I can make mistakes and I have made mistakes. I think in this regard, I am not sure where you're getting this type of black and white approach. You know, you don't, just like someone does not have to use mic drop, you don't have to go to websites either. 
As a matter of fact, I would recommend to you and to everyone, learn Teir Kol Yem Kule, and they should learn Teir Chsidis and Davin, and do mitzvahs. In general, who gave Bichlal a heter, that person should go to websites, any website. I don't care if it's a kosher website. That's not, the, that's not how Jews behave. We have a, a Teir. So if you really want to do things right, that's how I would begin. And acknowledge that. To start saying, you know, like I remember the first time I sent out some emails years ago with Taylor. Someone said to me, how could you be using email? Now, how did they tell this to me? With an email. They didn't realize the irony that writing to me with an email, why am I using email for teaching Taylor? So look, we have a guidelines from the Rebbe how to use technology. I mentioned before talents, how to channel it, how to harness it. Are there risks? Yes, there are risks. No one ever said we should go to websites altogether. You want a website you think is kosher for you? Listen to that. I don't know this whole issue of boycotts and critique. To me, is childish and doesn't get anywhere and it's not going to do anything. And we have much bigger problems. A Jew should not be reading newspapers, should not be reading magazines, and shouldn't be going to websites. Unfortunately, most Jews are not in that state. That doesn't mean there's a heter. It means that let's be realistic. So under the circumstances where things are not perfect, now we have to figure out what's the best way to address and deal with it. Okay. Uh, should I say more? No. You know what? We'll stop with this. Tell the Chacham V'yachamed. Those that understand, understand. Those that are still stuck in their certain parochial and narrow boxes. I think we can still love each other and care about each other and everybody should have their voice. Everyone's entitled to that voice. We don't have to agree. But hopefully we can all look for in direction from Tera, from Chesidus, from the Rebbein, the Rebbe, clarity in dealing with this issue and all other issues. Okay. Another follow-up was to the last, to episode 250 about Hamapil. That's the prayer we say at the end of Krishna before we go to sleep and the talk of discussion about speaking after Hamapil. I really loved what you said and how you summed up the issue about speaking afterwards. I want to point out to you that I saw from one of the Rabbonim a nice summation as well, and I thought it would just be interesting for your listeners to get up that summation about whether one needs to, if one needs to speak after saying Hamapil, that final prayer, before we go to sleep. So this is a summation of what this person writes. So in Tilim it says, reflect in your hearts upon your beds and be silent forever. So there's a postage that indicates that after you reflect, you should be quiet. That's where the halachic restriction of speaking after completing the Shema prayer. Those who recite the nighttime Shema with a traditional Nusach, the variation in prayer text from one Jewish community to another, conclude with Hamapal and do not speak afterwards. Some poskim rule uh, or they explain that the blessing of Amapal is an actual blessing on slumber, and there should be no hefsik interruption between its recitation and falling asleep. I mentioned that. It's about yourself. You should not be able to go right into sleep, similar to the requirement to eat immediately after reciting the blessing on food. Others maintain, and I, of course, address that as well, that the brach of Amapal is a statement on general phenomenon, the general idea of the world going into slumber the custom of the world, that by nighttime is for sleep. According to that opinion, Hamapal is not personal, so it does not necessarily limit your habit to immediately fall asleep after, whether you, after the prayer or not. 
It's more important to recite the prayer than to uphold the opinion that requires abstaining from speaking. Lying down to sleep without reciting is compared by some authorities to partaking of food without a blessing. So better to say the prayer and speak than not to say. Certainly an individual should not refrain from saying the prayer, therefore, out of concern that they'll be compelled to speak after receiving. There's room for leniency in speaking after reciting the prayer for the sake of a mitzvah, for example, if someone finds they've forgotten to say Asha after using the facilities, or a blessing after a meal, or they meet to show respect to a parent, answering their call, so there are exceptions. There's also dispensation for an insomniac once the amount of time has passed by when the average person would have fallen asleep. They are permitted to speak. Okay, thank you. I think it complements a few more details, and it's good. Very good. Third follow-up, hypnosis. It was in episodes 248-249. So one person writes that Rabbi Yeshua Landis was actually had interaction with the Rebbe about it. He's a psychiatrist from California. He's also the fellow you may be familiar with, the Rebbe communicated with him after Yud Beis Thomas Tov Shalamites about creating a kosher type of TM, transcendental meditation. So I have some links here. If anyone's interested, send us an email, send us on the forum, but include your email because we don't know how to reach you unless you give us your email. And I'll be happy to send links of communication and things from the Rebbe with, Rabbi La- with uh, Dr. Rabbi? I thought it was Dr. Landis. Okay. Oh, you know what? There's a, Yeshu- there's a Rabbi Yeshua Landis. I'm confused. He wrote about this. Then there's a Dr. Yehuda Landis. That's the one I was referring to. I'm sorry. The Rebbe made it very clear that he had grave, mis- grave misgivings about hypnosis. The Rebbe approved of using hypnosis to treat patients only in life-saving cases because hypnotized patients are deprived of their free will. I, of course, quoted the Rebbe's letter on that topic. So the son of Dr. Landis writes, My father refrained from using hypnosis after receiving this letter from the Rebbe, except in the most extreme cases. And here, too, there are two letters from the Rebbe to Dr. Yehuda Landis, one dated 21st of other two, 5738, and the second one, 16th of other one, 5738. It's a reverse order. So, okay, thank you for filling up the, the, filling the picture in, which, of course, is what I really want to do. Every topic, try to cover it from all angles and get more material. So anyone has more information on hypnosis, by all means. Let's go to the Chassidus question of the week, and then the essays. Okay, one second. Why the need for Seder Hishtalshlus? Why the need for the cosmic order? That whole process, the millions and steps, the worlds, the spheres, the higher levels, the lower levels, what's the need for it? Here's an eloquently written letter, which I was very impressed with, and um, I'm going to address it now. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Hasidus literally, literally applied. I really enjoy and gain so much from your weekly podcast. On my life, Hasidus applied. Thank you for the time you take to record and answer everyone's questions. I have a question that's been sitting on my mind for a while and would love to hear your thoughts on it. I feel like this topic is often overlooked, but I think it's fundamental and important questions to understand it's fundamental and important for us Chassidim to understand. Chassidim discusses so many deep topics, starting from Seder Shtalshlus, the cosmic order, and within that, 
moichen da atzilus, the intellect, cognitive of atzilus, das da atzilus, and even deeper than that, in haskolatika ma'morim, in the intellectual discourses, for example, the Rebbe explains that within malchus of atzilus, there's a chesenius and a primius, an outer and an inner. My point is that all this is explained, that all this is explained with such intricate and elaborate, elaborated details. I ask myself these two questions each time I finish learning a mimer. One, we know Hashem created Seder Shtalshus and the Seder of Briyas Elmas, the order, the order of creation. And we learn Exodus, Hashem started off with a Tzimtzum Arishin, a great concealment, the first concealment, and then left a Mokamachal space, not physically, conceptually. As Exodus explains, Hashem is a Kol Yochel, that God can do anything. So why did he need all these myriads of steps and levels of the cosmic order? Couldn't he have created us directly, yesh ma'ayin, from non-existence to existence? Why is it necessary to have all these detailed steps along the way between us and God? Number two, an even simpler question. What does this all matter to my life? How should this affect me? If I learn these discourses, these maimarim, even if I learn it extremely well and understand it and toil in it, we're living in 2019. What should it matter for me in my part of the world that in Malchus of Atzillus there are different levels? Surely it's not an intellectual exercise alone. Thank you in advance. Thank you again for taking your time to inspire others in all corners of the world. Warm regards. So first I want to refer you to episodes 86, 87 where I touched upon this to some extent and maybe there's overlap. But let me say this. It's an excellent question. And absolutely, God didn't need anything. He could do, poof, existence. But one key thing, he also, God, wanted something in existence. He didn't just create existence for his edification. He desired to have a home in this world. A home means that he has to feel comfortable in our existence, and we have to feel comfortable with him. Which means, in other words, he wanted a partnership. If God has wanted us to be subjects and puppets to follow orders, He wouldn't have created us with a mind, with a heart, with talents, with free will. So God wants a relationship. So from God's point of view, creating existence, yes, He could do it any way He wants, but there would be no relationship. It would be, as you said, kol yochel. God can do whatever He wants. How do we relate to that? We're not kol yochel. We're not, we can't do everything. So Seder Shtalshus technically is really, think of it, a bunch of stepping stones or rungs on a ladder. And that's what it means, Shtalshus, chain, links of a chain. For what? For us to be able to retrace the steps and have a relationship with God on level one, on level two, level three. Relationship requires some interface where we can relate to God and God can relate to us. Now God on His, it could do whatever He wants, but then it would be completely on God's terms. As soon as you want a relationship, you need something to interface the relationship. And hence, say the Ishtashos, the gift that God gave us, that I will speak to you through this language, and you speak to me through this language. Think of it like a translator, a mamutza, an interface. If the interface speaks only one language, God's language, we won't understand. If it only speaks our language, then it doesn't relate to God. So we need a say the Ishtashos, that at every step of the way, has something that reflects and represents the divine. And every step of the way is something that reflects part of existence. And as we climb, existence becomes more acclimated and more refined and more capable of receiving more of the air, the kalim to the air. 
And we go through Yitzhia and then Yitzhira and Bria and Atzilus, Chitzenis, Primis, all the levels you mentioned, and millions more. And then we go Atzilus, and there's Toyu, and there's Nekudim, Toyu, Akudim, Ak, the Kav, the Tzimtzum, all the levels before the Tzimtzum. All this is given to us as stepping stones to bridge the infinite gap between a divine that's completely beyond us and our existence. And that too is part of God's power, the Koyach the ability to choose, to choose, to implement steps that we can relate to. And God speaks to us also through these steps. He doesn't just send us gifts, He sends it to us on our terms. Not just gushing rain, flooding rain, so much good, it's too abundant, we can't receive it, raindrops. So he speaks to us through Chachmah, through Bina, through Das, through Chesed, through Gvurah, to Feres, Netzach, Hei, Yusayid, Malchus. And we speak to God also through those tools and faculties. Our faculties, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, Nishtal Shlu Mehem, Nishtal Shlu again, Nishtal Shlus, evolved, originated from the archetypes of divine attributes. So Mahu Chanun, just as God is kind, we are kind. Mahu Racham, just as God is compassionate, we are compassionate. Now, is God beyond compassion? Of course. Love you in midas, God is beyond all midas, all emotions, all intelligence, all structure, all definitions. But he chose to manifest in definitions. The Torah speaks in the language of the human being. When in truth, it's spiritual concepts. Torah really is a spiritual story that's beyond us. But it's hints to. And speaks in the language of man so we can relate to it. So sometimes we say the Torah is a Moshel HaKadmeni, the primordial metaphor. It's body, it's, in, it's battling divine into a language that we can hold on to, relate to, and grow with. If it was purely on the Kol Yochel level, we'd never be able to do that. Now you could say Kol Yochel is so powerful, God can do it even, but then it would, and too would be part of God's Kol Yochel, that he's letting us do something that we can't understand. This way we can climb the steps and we can begin to appreciate the divine, including the Kol Yochel, God's omnipotence and ability to do everything and anything, but in a way that we can relate to the way we were created. Now, why were we created this way and not that way? That's the way God wanted. He wanted Seichel, intelligence, the way it is right now. That's what God chose. It should be this way. That, of course, answers question number two as well. What does it matter? That's why it matters. Because each level is part of us, is part of our stepping stones. If you take out one stepping stone, we, there will be a gap. You won't be able to climb. So we have to find and apply. That's exactly the point. You apply every level, from the highest levels before the Simpson, all the way to all the levels you mentioned. We could talk about Malchus of Atzillus. Where is Malchus of Atzillus in the scheme of my personal relationship with God? That's the question you have to ask. And the question is, who cares? Why is that necessary? And when you understand that, it becomes a key component. Frankly, part of davening that I said earlier is that journey. It's a journey. It's a journey through these levels, through the four rungs, which reflect, which are, correspond to the four stages of davening that we have every day. And we climb. And we go for the material, like the Maggid said, to get the material. You have to go on the journey. You can't just contemplate on it. So I can elaborate, but thank you for the question. And again, episodes 86 and 87 is more about this topic. The, let's draw the essays now. These are still essays from last year's contest. 
First one, learning how to truly forgive in your heart by Malky Katz, age 24, Brooklyn, New York. Her work is Be Above Worldwide Institute Head Start Teacher. So she writes, Human emotions are complex. A range of so many different feelings come and go throughout your day. You feel excitement, disappointment, anticipation, happiness, anxiety, sadness, hope, fear, and despair. They typically pass, but these feelings of anger and resentment just seem to linger on in your heart and remain there forever. Being hurt by someone you know, especially when it's someone close, whom you trust, can cause feelings of depression, confusion, anger, and vengeance. There are countless different methods and approaches out there promising to help you, but in fact, so many of them are actually detrimental to your soul and just pushing you further away from the purpose for which you were created. This essay will expound on Hasidic teachings, specifically chapters 12 and 32 of Lakutei Amorim Tanya, to help you learn how to truly forgive others in your heart. Very well stated, and goes on, anger is detrimental, but you are unable to let go. A Hasidic approach to that. And then the practical level with real case studies, scenarios, with bullet points of how you can actually get much more control over this thing called our emotions. With a takeaway message, very well done. Must read, in my opinion. And uh, thank you. Next essay. The next essay is Al-Derech Moshel in Hebrew, for example, dot, 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 by Uriel Segel, age 36, Jerusalem, Israel, works for a machon, a foundation, a, uh, yes, for, for publicizing scholarly works, machon for hira, guidance and, and writing. So, Oriel writes the following. What is the role of an example? We find the role of an example. And what the role of metaphors and examples in our lives. I very much like the topic, really dissecting what it is, how it relates to social connections we have, to culture, to philosophy, and to our language and communicative skills. The need for metaphors, the need for examples that bridge the distance between us. And really analyzes, as I said, dissects what an example is, how to find one, how to make sure it's appropriately fitting the moral you want that example to teach. And really, it's uh, an excellent, I would say, an excellent uh, uh, workbook almost. I mean, it's an essay, but an excellent work regimen of how to develop communication skills and how to use muscle examples in every possible way, including uh, mediation and relationships and so on. So I would say it's a very creative, a very well-done essay. To me, it's one of the best of the last year's essays and um, must read as well. This essay, as well as the previous one, are now posted weekly. We don't post them all the time. We, post them, we won't post them all in one shot every week. You could see that meaningfullife.com slash mylife. Also, if you subscribe to our weekly emails, we send out the new essays as they're posted so you can pick that up from there. The final essay for today will be The Challenge of Entering the World. Menachem Mendel Rabinowitz, age 22, Brooklyn, a student in 770. And um, 
So he basically really sums up the battle of life as based on Tanya, the struggles, the different forces, the different voices that tug us in different directions. And um, obviously the things we can do to intervene to be able to deal with these different conflicts and overcome the challenges and not only overcome them, but um, to thrive in the process. So another well done essay, thank you. Um, good. So with that, we conclude this week's program. I want to wish everybody in a holy way, putting a putting that will break through all boundaries, any blocks, obstacles, fears, inhibitions, challenges, let Purim just blast right through it and lead us to a place, not escapism, to a place that transcends, that's higher than all of it. And let that Simcha come back into our lives in a way that we integrate it and internalize it forever. Lift it up on the wings of Purim. So Afrelchem Purim to everyone. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. This has been My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 253. Cold tooth.